All right, well, good morning, Roots. Good morning. Good morning, um, if, in case you don't know me, uh, my name is Dur. I, I serve on the uh, preaching team about once every two months or so. Uh, but I think I know most of you, uh, just in case I haven't met you. Um, well, this morning I get the, the privilege and the honor to be uh, sharing about a very, very easy topic, racial justice. <laughs> um, I'm glad you caught that joke. It is not easy at all. I had no idea how hard it would be to kind of frame this topic and uh, to kind of, uh, you know, really, because there's so many angles that you can kind of come at this topic. Um, and not only that, but especially in our political climate today, this is a very hot topic. And so I want to approach this topic uh, sensitively, but also courageously from scripture as well. Um, and so, um, and I think another reason it's really hard to frame this topic is that all of us in this room have a very different experience of race. All of us have different categories and definitions of what is race and what is ethnicity. Um, I mean, even two, two Hmong people in this room could have a different experience of race. Two, uh, two black people could have a different experience of race, and so on and so on. And so I found it really challenging to find, to pinpoint a single scripture verse that could cover all territories. And the truth is there is no single scripture passage that can really do that. But regardless of whichever scripture passage that I, that I taught from this morning, I knew I wanted to frame it in between uh, Genesis 12.3 and Revelation 7.9, right? I know that's really big. Um, but Genesis 12.3 talks about how uh, God calls Abraham to be a father of many nations. So from the beginning, God has already had it at the forefront of God's heart to bless all the nations of the world all the way at the start of Christian scripture. At the end of the Bible, we get Revelation 7.9, this picture where it says um, that from all nations and tribes and peoples and languages are standing before the throne of God. And so very early on that promise to bless all nations, we see that fulfilled at the end of um, our, our Christian scripture. And so um, whatever biblical passage I chose, I knew that I had uh, this, this, uh, this kind of direction or trajectory. It was already carrying this message. And so I'm going to uh, rest in that, and I'm going to rest in what scripture already tells us where humanity is going. So we've been in this series, then, as you know, uh, called Love in Public. Love in Public, it's a, uh, the name of the series is, is, a, is, a, is an, a nod to Dr. Cornell West's statement, justice is what love looks like in public. So as Pastor T.C. preached a couple weeks back on Shalom Justice, a shalom justice is this right relationship, right relatedness with others and with God. And that's always been God's vision for humanity from the beginning. The scripture reveals a God who cares deeply about justice and about shalom. And if there's racial injustice in this world that God has created, then God certainly cares about that also. A little bit of a disclaimer here, racial justice is such a big topic, we're not going to be able to cover every single angle or every single dimension, uh, especially within the 35 minutes that we have. But 
thankfully, here at Roots, um, I, I sense that a lot of us here at Roots already have some understanding that racial justice is uh, imperative to the gospel. So I don't need to spend a lot of time coming up with a defense for that relationship or for that position. Um, at the same time, I invite us to, to hold loosely some of our preconceived assumptions, uh, again, especially in this political climate. Um, and, and I encourage us and I invite us to really lean in to God's heart for racial justice this morning as we listen, as we turn to God, as we turn to his spirit to really teach us um, what this looks like in our context. Because racial justice is not merely a political voice in reaction to another political voice. It's not merely that. But ra racial justice is actually birthed from the very purposes that God has for humanity. And so that's something that's going to be really important for us to remember as we continue this morning. Racial justice, it's not just a, a reaction to another political category. It's actually birth in God's very heart for us. And so this morning, we create this space, this safe space to invite one another into this journey toward racial justice. And I'm calling the sermon, Our Journey Toward Racial Justice, because it's ours. We own it, and we all have a part to play. Nobody is a passive observer in this journey towards racial justice. God invites all of us into this journey together. And we invite each other to, 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 to point each other towards what I'm calling our Revelation 7-9 identities. We get to point each other towards that. So let's go ahead, let's begin with prayer. So would you pray with me? The Creator God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God, you are perfect community within yourself. You also created us to be in perfect community with each other and with you. And God, we confess that we are not able to live this out fully. But now, Lord, we ask that you, the God of shalom and the God of justice, would graciously, yet powerfully, speak into our hearts and shake the powers and the principalities within our societies and within us, that we may see and know your heart for a reconciled humanity across all ethnic and racial and national lines. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, this morning our scripture verse is going to come from uh, Psalm 146, verses 5 through 9. So if you have your Bible with you or your phone, you want to take out a Psalm 146, verses 5 through 9. I'll give you a moment to get there. The passage will also be on the screens, so you can look on that way as well. Uh, Psalm 146, verses 5 through 9. Blessed are those whose, whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. 
The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. But he frustrates the ways of the wicked. Psalm 146 specifically names the God of Jacob, the God of Israel. He attaches God to a human person, Jacob and Israel, which are really just two names for the same person. Uh, And Israel is a descendant of Abraham, who, as I mentioned, God calls Abraham to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. So Jacob is Abraham's grandson. And God is working, throughout Scripture, God is working with this family, Abraham, um, throughout the whole narrative of Scripture. And so this psalm, and essentially all of Scripture, points to God's mission within a particular uh, family, which is the descendants of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Israel. Psalm 146 further acknowledges this God as maker and creator of all the heaven and the earth. And because God created the heaven and the earth, God cares very deeply about his creation and about people in his creation. We see this uh, through this long list of characters uh, describing who God is and the things that matter to God in Psalm 146. So there's a whole list of it. And God is a God who upholds the cause of the oppressed, gives food to the hungry. These are all verbs that God does. He sets prisoners free, uh, gives sight to the blind, lifts up those who are bowed down, loves the righteous, watches over the foreigner, or some English translations have immigrants. God sustains the fatherless and the widow. So it's very clear, church, God Our God is a God who cares deeply about humanity, about suffering, and enters our situation with us, including justices, including injustices that relate to racial categories. So racial justice is inherently part of God's original vision for shalom justice throughout all creation. We see kind of a parallel between the God in 146, Psalm 146, and also Jesus' own understanding of his own ministry in Luke 4, verses 16 through 19. See, before we read that, as part of Jesus' ministry, again, we're really honing in on the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Israel. And Jesus' ministry, part of his ministry, is that he recruits these 12 disciples who actually represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And by doing this, Jesus is showing that he is regathering Israel and repurposing Israel back in alignment with God's original plan to bless all the nations. Again, that's why Jesus recruited 12 disciples. And so this is a a picture of Jesus' own understanding of his own purpose and his own mission. So Luke 4 verses 18 through 19. 
I'm going to read the short version because this is where Jesus enters a synagogue and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, which is the, the scripture that Barry read for us this morning. He reads from Isaiah 61 and Jesus reads, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So by reading this, and then Jesus goes on to say, today the scripture has been fulfilled, Jesus makes central to the good news that it relates to the poor, that it relates to the prisoners, that it relates to the blind and the oppressed. This is the good news. The same, uh, the Greek word for good news is the same word that we also get the word gospel from. When you hear the word gospel, it's the same word as good news. Inherent to the gospel is concern for the poor, the prisoners, the blind, and the oppressed. And so to proclaim release to the prisoners, uh, to the blind, this is the mission of God. This sounds like the same God from Psalm 146. Jesus situates himself right in the middle of Israel's God and says, I am doing the same thing. So in our context today, when we think about who are the people who make up these categories, who Jesus came to restore, as part of the good news, who are these people? Who are the poor, the prisoners, the blind, the oppressed? Just think about this for a second. You go into every, any major U.S. city you can imagine. Who are the poor in that place? What do they look like? What are their neighborhoods like? And their houses and their schools and their grocery stores? Who are the prisoners or those who experience disproportionate incarceration in our context? Who are the blind or those who are in greatest need of health insurance and proper medical aid? Who are the oppressed or those who are exploited, perhaps because they are perceived as foreigners and less than and outcasts? See, in our modern American context, it is black and brown bodies that disproportionately saturate these categories of whom Jesus comes to restore. Friends, this is our picture of racial justice for us today in America. I know that the word race does not explicitly appear in this passages. Although Psalm 146 mentions the word foreigners or immigrants, but for Luke 4, we don't need it to explicitly mention the word race because we already know the connection is that those who are the poor, the imprisoned, the blind, and the oppressed are disproportionately black and brown and yellow bodies in our modern Western context. That's because race as a modern phenomenon, it's, it's a social construct that was not yet invented in the time of the Bible. And race as a modern social construct was not yet invented until 
later on in the Enlightenment age of European culture. So of course, the Bible is not going to talk about race the way that you and I experience it today in our modern context. But the biblical principle is anti-oppression, right? Or justice is there in these passages. In the same way, we don't need scripture to talk about internet pornography in order to apply the principles of sexual immorality to our technologically advanced context today. The principle is there, but the invention of this, or this manifestation of this sin in society was not yet present in the time of scripture. So the biblical reality in Psalm 146 and in Luke 4 is social injustice. That's what's happening in Psalm 146 and in Luke 4 and in places like Jeremiah 22 and Isaiah and all over the Old Testament. Um, God cares about injustice. God is continuously calling Israel to realign back with his just and his shalom purposes for the world. This is racial injustice for us today as we experience it. So at this point, um, as we're talking about race and, and, and ethnicity, um, we're going to have to define these terms. So I'm going to lean heavily on uh, Dr. Brenda Salter-McNeil this morning. Yes. Um, her definition of race, I want to have it on the screen. So it's a little lengthy, but it's really helpful because, again, there is no... Uh, one really nice way to define race. There's so much historical complexity to this term, race. And so, so Dr. Brenda Seltzer-McNeil writes, race as a category was born out of the European scientific and cultural drive toward power and conquest. Roughly from 1492, Columbus's discovery and beginning conquest of the Americas, to 1945 at the end of World War II when the colonies of the world began to break free. Race and racism were key means for establishing, maintaining, and justifying relationships of dominance by Europeans of all non-European ethnic groups and nations on the basis of the inferiority of those other ethnic groups and nations. Race and racism are expressions of the fall of a people. In particular, the fall of the European peoples and their descent into idolatry, which is the worship of power and the pursuit of dominance in the entire world. So I'll give you a moment just to kind of let that process a little bit. It's a very full articulation of race Again, tied to history, tied to particular people groups who created this construct, this social construct. Race is, race is a social construct created by Europeans um, in seeking dominance over the rest of the world. And so wrapped up, even in the attempt to classify other people group, that is already putting yourself in a situation of superiority believing that you are somehow on neutral grounds and that other people are somehow deviant or exotic or inferior. I've, I've thought about this before, and it's very hard for me to imagine, um, say, like a 
Southeast Asian person or nation that goes around the world and studies like white people. That just breaks my paradigm because, uh, yeah, to study another culture, to study another people group, already presumes that you are the observer and they are the observed. Already presumes that they are deviant and exotic and um, they are to be classified. And so it, race was wrapped up in this uh, enterprise to go around the world and classify the rest of humanity. But relating race to ethnicity, Dr. Brenda Seltzer McNeil also writes that ethnocentrism, the belief that my ethnic group is central, superior, and destined to dominate, has characterized many ethnic groups throughout history. Right? I want you to, I want you to catch that. Ethnocentrism, belief that my ethnic group is, is, is central and superior, has characterized many ethnic groups throughout history. This, is not, this part is not unique to Europeans. Anyone can be ethnocentric. Ethnocentrism was one of the main barriers to the spread of the gospel beyond the Jewish people, as recorded in the book of Acts. But racism, the belief that my race is inherently superior, is a peculiarly European and European-American creation. And therefore, Europeans are uniquely responsible for the evil of racism. Racism is central to the expression of the fall and of self-worship in the nations whose roots go back to Europe. And I really love this line here where she writes, racism is Europe's in America's racialized ethnocentrism. So that's the, that's the connecting piece. Nobody is exempt from thinking that their language and their culture is superior. But Dr. McNeil makes the distinction of um, for Europe and for America, their ethnocentrism is expressed through the larger category of racism, of race. Whereas other people groups throughout the world, they don't have that larger category, um, which leads them to dominance over others. And so unlike race, which is a modern European social construct, ethnic ethnicity is something uh, that's actually acknowledged in scripture. That's where we uh, you know, have words like ethnos throughout, throughout the New Testament, where God gives us, God gives humans the mandate to go and be uh, creators of culture. So ethnicity is a God-given um, attribute for humans, each with their own language and their own culture and their own customs. Um, and ethnicity is not usually marked solely by skin color, right? It's not um, the, the big category of race. Ethnicity is a little bit more distinct and nuanced in that you could be, um, I mean, in different parts of, obviously in Europe, you can be white and still have two different languages. Um, in America, that used to be the case, but that's quickly fading away. But here in America, you could be Asian and speak a bunch of different languages, therefore different ethnic groups. And so ethnicity is something that God gives us, but the construct of race is something that uh, humans in their fall created uh, to, to subjugate others. And so under this definition of racism, um, Dr. McNeil suggests that it, it becomes hard 
if not impossible, to uh, for for non-white people to be racist, uh, because race was originally constructed out of European Enlightenment thinking. And so, we're gonna kind of just zoom out a little bit. Um, I just want to talk about just the systems that are in place before we got here. Okay, sin in the human heart um, has created all sorts of of ways that different societies now are negatively shaped. And then as individuals, we are born into these pre-existing sinful societies and systems. So of course, we're all gonna be impacted and shaped by these systems, um, both as, as the oppressor and as the oppressed. Um, and, and I believe if one can be born as the oppressed, then one can also be born as the oppressor. Because again, these systems were in place before uh, we arrived. But it doesn't have to end there. We can be anti-oppressor, or we can be anti-racist. We don't have to remain the oppressor. We also don't have to remain the oppressed. Um, in light of scripture, we can be anti-oppressed, and we, in light of scripture, we can claim our Revelation 7-9 identities where we know where humanity is going in light of who our God is, a God who cares for shalom and who cares for justice, and God is taking us in the direction, in the picture of Revelation 7-9, where before the throne of God, all tribes and nations and languages are gathered there in unity. So we can claim our Revelation 7-9 identity. I reflect a lot about everything that I'm saying here as a Hmong American male quite a bit. And so I'm just going to be vulnerable and put myself in the spot. As a Hmong American male, I'm born into an ethnic group that they're not shy about this. They value boys more than girls. So I was born into an ethnic group that already is biased in favoring boys. Of course that's shaped my thinking. For the worst, that has um, distorted how I see myself and um, women and who has more prize and value. Um, but I don't have to remain in that place. I don't have to uh, go on living my life thinking that's the only way to see uh, men and women. Right? Um, with, the, with, with the love of God and the grace of God and with uh, some very godly women who are gracious enough to speak into my own blind spots, then I can intentionally become anti-misogynist. I can intentionally say, that's wrong. That's not the picture that God has for humanity. I'm going to turn away from that and go in the direction that God would want humanity to go. Now, as a Hmong American male, when it comes to the racial ethnic categories, I was born on the side of the oppressed uh, when it comes to ethnicity and race. But again, I don't have to remain there either. With scripture pointing me to Revelation 7-9, I can begin to really claim my Revelation 7-9 identity today and when I do that, when I claim that identity, I also get to point my oppressors to their Revelation 7-9 identities. 
And that is the only hope that we have. That is the only hope for humanity is in Jesus Christ who accomplished this. So like God's character in Psalm 146 and Jesus' understanding of his own ministry in Luke 4, we are called to live in ways that restore the conditions of those who currently experience race-related injustices or racial injustice. But let's be honest, there is a lot of heartache involved in this process because we're going against powers and principalities and systems that we can't see, that we cannot pinpoint and say, there it is. Okay, and sometimes it's in us and we cannot identify it and we need someone else to call it out of us. And so there's a lot of heartache in this process. But this is the journey that I invite us all, this journey, our journey, towards racial justice, towards this Revelation 7-9 picture. That's my invitation for us this morning. So I really appreciate what Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil offers as uh, these five challenges um, for those of us who, who want to take up that invitation towards racial justice. It's all in her book in a much more uh, elaborate way. Uh, the book is called The Heart of Racial Justice, if you want the full context of these uh, five challenges. But I've sort of boiled them down here um, just for the purposes that I don't have to read her entire book to you, right? Um, but I want to give us a chance right now to respond practically. So I invite you to um, take out a phone or take out a, a pen and a notebook. And as we read these, I invite you to jot down one or two or however many of these challenges that you sense God might be putting on your heart to take up this challenge today. And this is all just for you. If you want to share it with a friend or a spouse, you know, I encourage that. But this is for you. So you write down whatever, however much, however little you sense God is calling you to respond to with these five challenges that are coming up. So challenge number one is worship. We worship God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and practice His presence. In doing so, in so doing, we encounter God's presence and power to melt our hearts and create a new possibility for being healed, reconciled, and created. So this first challenge is just starting with turning to God and recognizing that you need healing, I need reconciling, and you and I need to be recreated. Challenge number two is affirming our true ethnic identity and renouncing false identities. Challenge two says, we understand biblically and embrace personally our God-intended ethnic identities. We also learn to identify and renounce distorted and destructive ethnic identities as the idolatries as they are. As we embrace a healthy identity, we are empowered to speak the truth with the goal of hearing, healing, and being healed.
All right, challenge number three. Receiving and extending forgiveness. Again, what we're doing here is if you, if you sense God is inviting you into a certain challenge, I just encourage you to write it down in your phone or in your pen and paper. Challenge number three, receiving and extending forgiveness. We are all sinners and we're all sinned against and desperately need forgiveness. So together in God's presence, we revisit the personal and corporate memories of our sin and of being sinned against. Bringing our collective and personal memories into the presence of Christ then leads us to acts of extending and receiving forgiveness. Next, we have challenge number four, which is renouncing idols. There you go. A few people taking pictures of of this slide. That's that's smart. Renouncing idols. Next, we name and we unmask and renounce the false gods related to racism and ethnocentrism. We renounce the larger spiritual forces of evil that our mothers and fathers and ethnic groups have followed and too often worshipped and obeyed. These forces and past idolatries have controlled and have bound us. But just as the cross of Christ brings forgiveness of sin, it also brings freedom from the principalities and powers. Amen. Amen. Moving on to challenge number five. This is the the last and fifth challenge that Dr. McNeil offers us. Challenge number five, ongoing partnership. So we are now already in a new creation, stepping into it, sinner and sinned against. We're able to embrace and live in the power of the resurrection and the gift of the spirit. Together, we become agents of reconciliation in a divided world. So hopefully you um, sense God inviting you into a couple of those. If not, that's, that's totally okay. Um, but this is just, uh, you know, I wanted to offer some practical after a sermon like this, I know many people are thinking, so what? What, can, what do I do? What can we do? So I just wanted to offer that to us. And I like how um, Dr., uh, Dr. McNeil writes that um, it's, it's soul change that leads to social change. And so I offer this as a space for God to work on our hearts. And that what, where we go then, we can then impart um, and live out this new society and this new shalom justice. So racial justice is a journey that we get to invite each other on. It's a journey that scripture has already laid out the final trajectory to Revelation 7-9. It's this picture of shalom justice where we were always meant to have right relationship with each other and with God. From our position, 
We're in this like little microcosm that we exist in. And it's really messy. We're in the middle part right now. But even then, we can be encouraged that racial justice was always part of God's vision for shalom justice. So as we close, would you pray with me? Oh God, Father of every people on earth and Redeemer of every nation, pour out your Spirit. Illumine our minds with the truths of your gospel that free us from the power of Satan and that reconcile us to our enemies, both ancient and modern. God, we need you to intervene. On our own, God, we have no hope. We don't have the tools on our own. But with you and your Son and the gift of your Spirit, we believe that the time has come for a great awakening in our nation, in our communities, in our cities, that brings all your children together to stand for your kingdom of justice and of love and of shalom. God, would your kingdom come Would your will be done on earth just like it is in heaven? And Lord, bring glory to your name in these days. Establish your victory over the sins of our fathers and mothers and over the spirits of evil at work to destroy the people. Lord, teach us to pray and help us to preach your kingdom and teach us to receive and minister your healing power. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray and all God's people said, amen.